0: It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Marie Osborne and Dr. Jonathan Zaden presented by Women's Excellence. Now here's your host, Marie Osborne. Welcome into the Healthy Woman Show. I'm Marie Osborne, as always, with Dr. Jonathan Zayden of Women's Excellence. Dr. Zayden, we know October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we'll be dedicating a portion of the show today to learn more about the disease and how healthcare leaders like Women's Excellence aim to educate and help women in our community stay healthy.
1: Well, it's also great because, you know, this is National Midwifery Week. And we're also going to talk about our new center, Endometriosis Treatment Center of America, which is now fully up and running and well in tune to uh, take care of people for pelvic pain, irregular bleeding, endometriosis, and things and symptoms that women have that seem like endometriosis.
0: And of course, we're going to have Jessica joining us a little bit later in the show to talk about Ask the Doc, our our well-known segment where you get to answer patient uh, emails and patient questions, and we can't wait to hear what she has in store for us a little bit later in the program. Stay with us here on the Healthy Woman Show on WJR. Welcome back to the Healthy Woman Show. I'm Marie Osborne with Dr. Jonathan Zayden. Dr. Zayden, it's been a while since we've talked about your midwifery services at the practice. And I know that it's been National Midwifery Week. And I know you've been able to do a lot of talking with your team about this topic and how to better bring it to to your patients. So let's talk a little bit about it in terms of our listeners. What exactly is midwifery?
1: Midwifery are really um, nurses who specialize in obstetrics or pregnancy. So they specialize in, in taking care of women um, when they're either in the preconceptual mode, um, wanting to become pregnant or the uh, during pregnancy mode or the delivery mode and then and then the postpartum mode. And then they're also, their, you know, their skill set because they know women's anatomy and their bodies and their physiologic processes so well, can do things like annual exams and provide um, contraception if somebody desires that or, you know, and even uh, manage some of their hormonal patterns. So, I mean, you know, midwifery is a, is a relatively large scope of, of practice. Um, in our practice at Women's Excellence, we do it um, where we have a collaborating physician So there's always a physician there to help if the midwife needs physician assistance. And I think that's the important thing from our perspective at Women's Excellence is that there's always someone there to to help out.
0: And you answered a bit of my question. One of my first questions when I knew that we were going to talk about this is what is the educational background of a a typical midwife? And you said they're, they're RNs or they're nurses
1: correct and then they go really for you know essentially for our audience a master's degree in in obstetrics and that you know they're doing both clinical and and additional uh study work um to you know learn about the physiology and 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 all of the different aspects of of pregnancy and a woman's body and, and again their their metabolic function right so you know every every woman has a certain metabolic function both hormonal and 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 the way they you know they have to go through their life with development of their sexual organs and in breast and lactation and menstrual cycles and so forth. So they just get a, a little bit more specialized training on all of that. And it's very important because, you know, they're very knowledgeable and their mindset is to really provide the most natural, holistic type care possible but also to do it in a very safe environment and obviously they've went for these certifications because they you know they believe that there are certain things that we can provide you know in the western medicine type of arena you know that can help augment them to get safe and healthy babies and and also you know promote safe and healthy healthy hormonal management to people
0: so what is natural childbirth
1: well natural childbirth i mean there's so many uh different definitions of this. I think that would depend a little bit more on who you ask. But, uh, you know, some people assume that natural childbirth has to be done at home. You know, there are other people that, you know, may you know, may consider natural childbirth, you know, being done in a barn. But I can tell you that natural childbirth is really when there's limited intervention by us as clinicians, you know, we're allowing labor to progress the way that it would normally progress. And, you know, I think we're all aware, we sometimes lose sight of it, that, you know, at some point there were natural processes that we all did, and then we've intervened along the way. I think the big point to understand there is the interventions that we've done have been very important. But sometimes it seems as if we are over intervening as healthcare providers. Sometimes there's tests where everybody's thought, do I really need that extra test? And is that test done just because it's absolutely necessary or is it just to kind of cover the physician to know or the clinician to know that, you know, they actually offered the test to the person in case there is a very uh, unlikely event that occurs. Natural childbirth kind of takes that out of the mix and says, you know what, we're going to allow this to progress naturally. What I think our midwives at Women's Excellence have done great is that they've allowed a natural environment, but they're utilizing some of the techniques and monitoring and so on and so forth that allow us to pick up an abnormality where if there was a completely natural experience, there could be something that goes awry, we're going to pick that up in advance, but we're still going to give a natural experience if it's applicable to do so. And I think that's what people are so scared about right? Is if I did this all on my own, how do I know something bad wouldn't happen? And I think the midwives are there to help that out.
0: Uh, Dr. Zayden, before we wrap this segment up, I have to ask you about home birth, because when people think about midwives and natural childbirth, a lot of people naturally make the association with home birth. And with the advent of social media, we're seeing a lot of that on our on our feeds uh, and social media. Can you talk briefly about home births?
2: I I
1: think that, you know, I was a, a practicing obstetrician for, you know, now 23 years. And I, I, I did it as a solo obstetrician for about nine years. And our midwives, you know, are all, have all been practicing in a hospital setting and so forth. And we've all seen things that have been completely normal go awry in a very, very quick amount of time. And I think the concern with doing a home birth, if everything goes natural, there's no concern, but there is a concern is if something, you know, extra bleeding occurs, if, uh, you know, the baby really can't descend, how long is it going to take now to get to, you know, a place where we can intervene? And I think that's the biggest scenario about home birth. I mean if if everything goes natural everybody's had a baby in the hospital that said you know and said after they had the baby we could have done this you know in our in our twin bed in our extra bedroom but it's when that doesn't happen and you know the risks are are too high you know and I think that's you know why we we take uh, you know that extra step fortunately at Beaumont if you if you're completely healthy and you really don't have any problems you know we have the Carmanos Natural Birth Center And that allows our midwives to do a completely natural approach within the proximity of a place where we could really help them if needed. And we could do that relatively quickly. What what I think people don't understand about home birth, Marie, I'm gonna ask you this question. Do you know anyone that's gone through a home birth yourself? I do. And did it go well?
0: Uh, One went well and one did not.
1: And, and, And the one that did not, the one difficulty that they have is if they have to get to the hospital, people ask me all the time if they're coming remote to you know get to the hospital and they're anticipating a, a hospital birth. I'm just scared I won't make it on time. I'm about 45 minutes out. Yeah. Cause they know that even if they're 45 minutes out, it's gonna take them 15, 20 minutes just to get into the hospital. Right. That's just the reality of it. I mean, hospitals are big places now. You don't just walk in and and, and have someone there. You got to get through an elevator. You got to get through security. You got to get through all those things. Well, with a home birth, that becomes even more, I think, at times, because, you know, now we have no history on these people when, you know, when they've you know been at home in, in many cases. You know, now sometimes people are handling a home birth where there is a great history and there are certain lay midwives out there that are, you know, are functioning very very well in that ser- scenario and the only risk there is that you know they come in and we don't we don't know that history sometimes they can provide it and they come with the patient sometimes some of these home births are not they don't go as smooth and it takes a while to assess a patient and then bring them to a point where you can actually provide treatment for them. Oftentimes you're, you're kind of in the dark if you're the physician on call and somebody comes in like that. And so, you know, my concern for people that have, you know, do home births is that, you know, what if that one thing happens? Wouldn't you rather have the safety net of having a hospital there? And if you can get into a place like, you know, I mean, fortunately what, uh, you know, Mrs. Carmanos uh, donated in the Carmanos family, the natural birth center, where you can have that experience, but still be there in case there something goes uh, in an unnatural way, I think that's the best.
0: A lot to think about for prospective moms and dads, that's for sure, Dr. Zayden. When we come back here on the Healthy Woman Show, we're gonna talk about Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Always so much to say about that. Stay with us here on WJR. welcome back to the healthy woman show I'm Maria Osborne with Dr Jonathan Zaden Dr Zaden in our last segment I failed to bring up and this was so important that your practice has gotten a very important honor
1: I would love to uh, say it's my practice but it, it it's really not our, it's not my practice at all it's it's actually this is an honor that was bestowed to all of the midwives that were involved at Women's Excellence And the American College of the Nurse Midwives, um, we got recognition as a best practice in 2020 for our low rate of uh, postpartum hemorrhage. And also we have a very low C-section rate, uh, you know, which kind of talks a little bit about our natural birth. And, you know, I think it really plays into the the fact of what I was talking about earlier and that, you know, midwifery services are covered by insurance. We do have collaborative care and, you know, we're, we're, you know we're winning best practice awards because we're getting healthy babies with a low c-section rate and and really decreasing their their overall risks and and i think that's very very important and i think i'm very very excited about um this award that they all received and they i hope they're all listening tonight so that they can actually revel in that because it's it's not something that every practice achieves quite frankly
0: Absolutely. And, and, and one last quick question as we uh, wrap up that topic, I just wanted to ask you about midwifery and insurance. Is that covered by most insurance?
1: Yeah, it's like I said, you know, midwives are covered, um, you know, with our collaborative care model that we have at Women's Excellence, midwives are are covered with insurance the exact same way that you would have if you went to a physician only practice. <laughs>
0: All right, so on to Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It is October and such an important topic. About one in eight women in the United States, about 12% will uh, develop invasive breast cancer over the course of a lifetime. That is a, a huge statistic and a worrisome statistic, Dr. Zayden. And in fact, I don't know, when I first started reporting on this years ago, that was the statistic. It seems like we haven't moved the needle on that.
1: No, I don't think we've moved the needle much about, you know, the overall prevalence of disease. Um, That's for sure. I think what we have done is we've made some significant strides in how people are treated and, and how they function after they're treated. When I first started practice, Marie, it was difficult to walk into a room when somebody had an abnormal mammogram because people knew that if you had an abnormal mammogram, you had a chance of having breast cancer they all knew people from the generation before them that did not do well with breast cancer and even if they survived they often tied head very large edematous arms and, and so on and so forth from all the lymphedema that they experienced from these radical surgical procedures that they did and many and many women succumbed to the disease itself and and now It's much different. I mean, you know, 20 years later, when I see somebody for the diagnosis of an abnormal mammogram or even a biopsy that was done that is a cancer, you know, I give them a very, very good outlook. But I'll tell you, one of the reasons that we do that is because we find breast cancer earlier. And that is the most important thing that we've done. I don't think we've taken away the prevalence. What we've done is we've increased our surveillance, we've increased awareness to need surveillance. And we found breast tumors faster, at a smaller size, and at a lesser stage. And that allows the surgeons and the radiation oncologists and people that are oncology that take care of chemotherapy, all of those, a much better start at battling this cancer. So you have so many more breast cancer survivors walking around today to help spread that message. And then, you know, things like the Avon walk and all the things that have been done now for, for breast cancer, I think have made it great. I mean, I it's, it's a much easier diagnosis to talk to people about. People have much more awareness and they've been more likely to have been diagnosed early. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's what we have to talk about with, with our patients, not only on this radio show, but also in our offices. I mean, it's so important to make sure that people get their mammograms, that people get some sort of breast screening. Maybe that's an MRI. Maybe, you know, these are very important things that, you know, sometimes people are busy and they just want to skip them.
0: Absolutely. That's uh, life sometimes gets in the way. That's for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the symptoms of breast cancer that women need to be aware of, things they need to look for.
1: I'll tell you, you know, now I see so many more breast cancer cases because of early detection with mammography and so the symptoms become a little bit less um, than the actual radiologic uh, diagnosis uh, but if you get a lump or a swelling in the breast or around the upper chest or in the armpit if you get any change in the skin we call that pure orange, okay and that's uh, french for like a dimpling of the skin That can do it. Um, You know, that's something that we'd want to evaluate right away because that tissue underneath that maybe be affected by these abnormal cells can start to be pulled down, and it has a, a characteristic appearance. If you if there's any change in the color of the breast. That can, you know, that kind of can indicate that there's a different blood supply and it can look a little bit red or inflamed. And really underneath the tissue, there's something that's more metabolic, such as a, as a tumor. If there's any nipple change, for example, if, you know, if the nipple has always been more like erect or, you know, had a certain uh, shape or configuration in you your whole life. And then all of a sudden, you notice, notice on one side or unilaterally that that nipple starts to change in it in the way it looks. That can be something underneath the skin pulling it down. That's something that we would want to evaluate. And then if there's any rash or any kind of, uh, you know, crusting of tissue around around the areola or that area of color around the uh, nipple itself. And then um, obviously, if there's any discharge from the nipple, especially if it's a bloody discharge, and then any big changes in the size or shape of a breast, especially if that change is unilateral or one-sided. That's stuff that we want to see you for right away. Those are the main symptoms. I mean, there's a few others, but they would be very, very uncommon. These are the ones to look for. And if you get any of those, I urge you to get immediate attention. This isn't something that you put off for six months.
0: I have heard uh, say that most women who are diagnosed with breast cancer don't have, do not have a family history of of breast cancer. So, But let's take a moment and talk about those who might have that genetic link to a mother, an aunt, a sister who had uh, breast cancer in the past. What do they need to know?
1: You know, it's all about surveillance, right? So You know, again, we talked about this earlier on in this segment that, you know, one in eight women in their lifetime, 12 percent, are probably going to get an invasive breast cancer. So so how do we detect those people even more uh, diligently? And and first is we're offering everyone screening mammography. Right. And we've done a pretty good job keeping that to be a yearly endeavor. But the second thing would be to know the people that are more likely to get it. And those are those people with family history. So if we genetic test them and we know that they carry genes that they're more likely to get it, we may even do more invasive testing, you know, or more, I wouldn't say invasive, even more diagnostic uh, testing, such as an MRI, as opposed to a mammogram so that we can detect things even faster and sooner, because we know that statistically they have a, a greater risk of getting the disease. Just because you're genetic tested and have a positive test doesn't mean that you'll get breast cancer. It just means that statistically, you're much more likely to get it than somebody who doesn't have that gene. And so we're using a conjunction of, you know, yearly mammography, additional testing for people that maybe have a questionable mammography, such as MRI, ultrasound, the 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 introduction of genetic testing to allow us to determine who we might want to screen even more uh, readily or who we would want to work up for the slightest abnormality where we might just watch over 6 months if it's a, if we know that they're a genetic uh, carrier we're going to we're going to test them even quicker and so you know all of those types of things are going to overall help us battle the disease and that has what has made Our our difference in people that get breast cancer and the breast cancer survivors today from what it was 25 years ago.
0: And we do want to say that uh, at Women's Excellence, during the month of October, you're going to have special office hours on Saturday to get your screenings done and how important that is. Dr. Zayden, when we come back, we're going to dig into that mailbag along with Jessica Rousset, talk about questions that we have from our audience and from your patients. Stay with us here on WJR. And welcome back to the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR. As we do every month, we have Jessica Rousset with us, patient outreach coordinator at Women's Excellence. She lugs in this big bag
1: Of mail, actually, in the day and age of electronics I see her as Santa Claus
2: (laughs) meeting like
1: four or five different elves, (sighs) like medical assistants that are holding the bag as she's walking through. Right, it's an electronic world, Marie.
0: In the day and age of computers, though, let's let's be real. I think that a lot
2: of these are emailed. So good enough, right? Right. What have you got for Doc today? Yeah, you know, it's nice for patients to have this resource, you know, and I always make it a point that um, if any question gets answered, I will send the patient or the listener the recording like, hey, your question was on here, take a listen, so they can actually get their answer. Um, but yeah, let's just start it right off. I'll, maybe this is an easy one, I'm not sure, but we've covered this before. It just it comes up every month, so it's a good one to keep on here. Um, this patient says... I had a partial hysterectomy several months ago. Since the surgery, I have no sex drive, and when I do have sex, it's very painful. What can I do about it?
1: You know, that's an interesting, um, interesting question, and I do think that we confront it in the office from time to time, for sure. Partial hysterectomy is a tough, um, is is an actual tough term because we don't really understand completely what partial hysterectomy means. Because that could mean that they took the whole uterus, tubes, and ovaries out, but not the cervix. That could mean that they just took the uterus and cervix, but not the ovaries. So it could be a lot of things. But I think most people in the community um, consider a partial hysterectomy where the ovaries are left intact. So I'm going to go about it from that perspective, understanding that there may be somebody else that understands it differently. So please, uh, you know, re-listen to this segment on a podcast if, if that's the case, so you understand where I'm coming from. I'm answering the question of a partial hysterectomy being defined as the uterus being removed with or without the cervix and the ovaries being intact. And if the ovaries are intact, we would expect that somebody would still produce hormones. They would still produce the same estrogen and progesterone that they normally would produce, and they would probably produce the same levels of testosterone. We know that early on after we do hysterectomy, there probably is some hormonal disruption because when we do the hysterectomy, we do take away part of the blood supply to the ovary because really the ovary is suspended in between two ligaments, one that goes to the the lateral side of your your body called the infundibulopelvic ligament and another one called the ovarian ligament, which we sever when we do the hysterectomy itself. So for a temporary disruption, six months to a year, you could have some decrease in in the way your ovary produces hormones and some of those symptoms. If it happens long term, it's really something that we would have to work up. And I have to say that many people have hysterectomy when they're in their late 30s and early 40s or even beyond. And that is a time where people do have a tendency to have more painful intercourse and difficulties with vaginal dryness and so forth. So it may not be the hysterectomy itself. It may just be the aging process as well because those things are happening. And then I see a lot of patients with pelvic pain and those people with pelvic pain sometimes are getting their hysterectomy because they had pelvic pain and they really haven't had intercourse that much because it was it was painful and they expected that when the hysterectomy got done for their overall symptoms of pelvic pain that intercourse would would be you know normal for them again the way it was maybe 5 or 10 years before that before they ceased doing it so much because of their because of their pathology and that isn't always the case. As people age, intercourse can become a little bit more difficult. So I just urge people that if they have that, to get a full workup and make sure it includes a hormonal panel. Because you know, let's see if if the hysterectomy had something to do with it hormonally. Maybe the blood supply, you know, that was uh, transected during the time of the hysterectomy, changed. You know, your hormonal levels, and we can do some supplementations to overall help.
2: Awesome. Okay, this one's kind of hard. And I kept it exactly how the patient wrote it, because I think that's important. You know, when uh, I think sometimes women, when they talk to doctors, they don't know what words to use or how to describe their problems. So this one says, it's gross, but here it goes. My labia are too big, and they dangle down a bit, and they get caught in my underwear, and I feel self-conscious to have sex. What can I do?
1: You know, um, that has become more and more of uh, something that people address. And I truly believe that that's more about women being more comfortable with their bodies today than they ever were in the past. I mean, I think in the past, you know, women leaked urine and they just kind of covered that up and they wore a lot of undergarments if they had any kind of cosmetic deformities or labial deformities, they were more ashamed of that than they were, you know, accepting of it. And they were less likely to, you know, ask for medical care. On top of that, you know, let's face it, you know, three decades ago, having surgery was much more complicated and had, you know, far more risks than it is today. I mean, we have better anesthetics and all of those things. If people have large labia now that are symptomatic, you know, that's called a labioplasty or a labial reduction or partial vulvectomy. That's the procedure that we do. There really is no medical procedure for that. We can't really shrink the labia with any, um, any tools or medications, um, you know, but we can provide even these simple labialplasties or vulvectomies in the office. And, and, it, and they're relatively simple to do. It is a recovery. It's not an area that you can completely immobilize, right? I mean, you have to, you know, your, your you know, urination is going to go through that area. You're going to be sitting in, in that area and so forth. But, you know, there's some simple uh, surgical uh, techniques to actually improve the cosmesis and improve the function. So that's not painful and the friction and some of the irritation that people have with labial, what we call hypertrophy. So I just recommend a consultation with your doctor and we do it at women's excellence. Um, and you know, and we can help.
2: This wasn't a part of the question, but I just was thinking of it. Would insurance cover it? If,
1: if there's a, if there's a medical indication, yes, Jessica, I mean, they do cover it. Uh, you know, I'm sure you don't see that. I know, you know, you know, you do the marketing side of our office, and you probably don't hear that. But you know, yeah, if there's a medical indication. Now, if somebody comes in and they don't have any problems and they just want, you know, some cosmetic uh, uh, changes in their uh, vulva, that that is not covered.
2: Okay. Let's move on. Next one. Let's see. You were kind of talking about incontinence, so I'll go up to an incontinence one. Um, actually, this has to do with a prolapse. I have a prolapse and I'm an avid runner. What treatment would you recommend? I've heard about pessaries. That's how you pessaries, right? Is that how we pronounce it?
1: Pessaries. Um, yeah.
2: What are they, and would you recommend that for my case?
1: Well, pessaries are devices that you put in the vagina to kind of keep the structures up in the vagina. Now, prolapse is a is a, a wide term that could mean cystocele, which is a bladder dropping. It could mean rectocele, seal which is the rectal wall you know coming out it, it could mean vaginal vault meaning the whole vagina is coming out it could mean that the uterus is coming out or utero vaginal prolapse so you know it depends on what type of prolapse you have but but this is this question is really regarding a pessary and so you can use a pessary for any one of those conditions there's multiple different types and that's something that would be more discussed with a physician um in general but the actual use of a pessary I use them for people that are more immobile than mobile. I offer them sometimes to people who are more mobile. But the problem is, in order for the pessary to be effective, it has to be larger than the opening of the vagina. If it's not, it's just going to, you know, it's going to relax out and the moment you move or do something heavy, it's it's going to come out of the vagina and it's not going to help you. So this is a device that's placed into the vagina to hold the organs up. And so my thought process is if you have to put something in that you're going to push down on your pelvic floor in order to keep everything up, it's going to put some pressure on the, on the tissue around there. And you're very active, such as a runner, you're probably going to get some ulcerations or pressure ulcerations of the tissue. Think about people that are in wheelchairs all the time. One of the biggest things you have to protect is if they're sitting in that chair all the time, their tissue gets constant pressure. When it, they can't feel it, so they don't necessarily move, and that tissue can get you know, ulcers or Necrosis. And the same thing happens with a pessary. Might not get necrotic because the patient would have more pain before that happened. But what happens is that it, you know, they get ulcerations in the vagina when they're very active. So I would tell them that they're, you know, they would be more apt for a surgical fix, maybe a minimally invasive surgical fix, um, as opposed to a pessary, depending on the type of their prolapse. These are tough ones, Jessica.
2: <laughs> I know this one, this, this time was tough. I think we have time for one more. So let me get this one in. Um, I've never had abnormal periods, but now I'm 37 and I'll have two to three week long cycles. And I also bleed after an orgasm. What could be causing this? I thought that was interesting because it seems I I don't know. I don't know
1: what could be going on with her. Well, I don't think anybody knows just by history exactly what uh, is going on. But what I would tell you is this. When you have irregular periods like that, you should be worked up we should get laboratories, we should get an ultrasound, there could be an intrauterine abnormality, there could be a lab abnormality, and sometimes when people get bleeding with orgasm, it's really because there's there's extra blood in the cavity, there's a lot of contractile activity when someone has an orgasm, and then that blood comes out at that time. So I, my recommendation to be, be short, sweet, and blunt is to get a full workup, make sure you go to your doctor, get labs, get a, a pelvic ultrasound, determine what the cause is, and make sure you get a treatment.
0: Thank you, Dr. Zayden, And of course, Jessica, thank you so much for all those great questions. When we come back, we'll talk about the Endometriosis Treatment Centers of America. Stay with us here on WJR. And welcome back to the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR. Dr. Zayden, we didn't want to close off the show without talking for a moment about the Endometriosis Treatment Center of America. I know you've made great progress. Tell us a little bit about some of the latest things that are happening at the center.
1: Well, you know, as you know, we we opened this whole center, you know, in the last six months for sure. It's been less than that. And you know we've come a long way. We opened our Lake Orion flagship office, and we have three physician assistants now that work for us. Uh, they were on the show a couple of months ago: um, Emily Zelmer, uh, Kaylee Traver, and also Lauren Toma. And they're doing a great job. We're seeing new patients every day, and we're seeing you know a lot of pathology from just about everywhere. It's interesting. We've always done complex surgeries, uh, you know, of endometriosis and now since we've opened the center we're seeing you know even more complexity in the surgeries we we provide we're starting to share videos about some of the things that we do and we're really i believe making a huge difference and in that time period now we're even opening our new office in Birmingham um right now they're it's under some minimal uh, cosmetic construction so they're finishing all that and then that should be completely ready to go in in a very short period of time so i would expect that you know by by Thanksgiving, even we uh, will be close to opening that and probably open it by the first of the year with uh, with all the furnishments. So that's going to give people from uh, the western uh, suburbs, and from the south of Detroit, a place to come uh, a relatively simple, and then Lake Orion, our office there, you know, allows our people from Lapeer and the thumb bad Axe, and, uh, you know, Bay City and all that to come down from from that perspective from the north. So we really are are capturing patients from all areas and very, very excited about it. You know, it's, and- it's amazing what we've done I, in a short period of time. And I can thank these physician assistants that we have. They've done a marvelous job in taking patients, leveraging my time so that we can provide, you know, great surgery, um, to people who absolutely really need it.
0: And when you talk about patients who really need it, I mean, we talk about this every single time we talk about endometriosis, there's no need anymore to suffer in silence. This is something that uh, you can be heard at this center. In other words, women can come in and someone will listen to what it is that they have to say about their symptoms.
1: I'm so glad there's more awareness out there. I'm I'm a big proponent to this the awareness that's gone on. I really am glad that people are aware of this disease. I mean, it, it personally affected me. It's something that you know that I'm passionate about. I mean, you know, it it definitely hindered our ability, my wife and I, to to have a family. And so, you know, if you have painful intercourse, painful periods, heavy bleeding, just pelvic pain in general on a regular basis, pain with bowel movements, cyclic abdominal pain, you know, cyclic pain anywhere, even, even under your rib cage, maybe potentially diaphragmatic uh, pain, any of that, if it's cyclic with your, with your periods, or if it was cyclic and now is becoming more chronic, you need to see us at uh, Endometriosis Treatment Center of America. We can be found easily at uh, www.centerofendometriosis.com and you'll get an appointment for sure within a few days or or less than a week um, with one of our uh, physician assistants that are amazing and they know everything about, you know, how to intake a patient with with these types of symptoms because clearly, I mean, people are, are a lot different when they've gone through a lot of healthcare experiences trying to find someone to help them. They're not only empathetic, but they're also thorough, and we have a good system to get you better.
0: Again, if you're suffering from symptoms of endometriosis and you'd like to go somewhere where everyone's singular focus is just on that one particular thing, endometriosis, you can go to senderofendometriosis.com for more information. Or if you'd like more information about Dr. Zayden and the practice in general, go to women'sexcellence.com. Thank you again, Dr. Zayden. We'll see you again next month.
1: That's a pleasure. Thank you.
2: The Healthy Woman Show has been presented by Women's Excellence.